All right, I'm going to start out reading in Hebrews chapter 12 tonight. Uh, just to get us started, we're going to talk a little bit about the gospel. So Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1, says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who is the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is a great passage. I love this. To me, it's very encouraging because we can see here the work of Jesus Christ and what it is that he did for us, that he is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one that has saved us. There is no other way to be saved except through Jesus Christ. We can see here that faith is the only way also that we can be saved. We know that we're saved by faith alone, and that is in Christ alone, and that is because of God's grace alone. And so, because of these things, the writer of Hebrews is encouraging us to run this race, right? To run it uh, with endurance, this, this race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. This is something that we all do as Christians. We should always have our eyes fixed on Jesus, and, and sometimes that gets really hard to do, especially when we watch the news. <laughs> when we watch the news, or turn on the TV, or just go to work, or sometimes just drive in traffic. <laughs> sometimes that's, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it's easy for us to get our eyes off Jesus. There's so many things that happens around us. The world wants to pull us in every direction to distract us. That's what Satan's job is, to try to, to keep us from running this race with endurance. But thank God that the Holy Spirit indwells us. Jesus Christ himself has saved us and keeps us, and it's because of these things that we are constantly drawn back to him, even though we're being pulled in different directions. Um, that To me, this is this is an encouraging thing, and it's something that we should always focus on every day uh, not just on Sunday, but every every day of the week is focusing our eyes on Jesus Christ. How can I be more like Him? And how can I go through this world? How can I drive through traffic <laughs> like Jesus would drive through traffic? How could I, you know, how could I watch the news and not be discouraged? How can I see that Jesus is in control of everything? He's sovereign uh, because we know that He is, right? And sometimes we lose sight of that. And that's whenever we get pulled into this, this gloomy thing that the world wants to suck us into, right? But, <clears throat> but we fix our eyes on the prize. We fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. And because of him, we're able to run this race. We're able to endure these things that, um, that we face every single day of our lives. So we always want to talk a little bit about the gospel and about what Jesus has done for us that we understand that he took our sins upon himself. He went to the cross as a substitute for us. We're going to be talking a little bit about penal substitutionary atonement tonight. And um, 
It's a good biblical doctrine, understanding that Jesus Christ, he took the wrath of God upon himself in our place, and he died. He was buried and raised again on the third day. And now, as this is talking about, he is see he, he's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Um, and one day we're going to see him. One more day, one day we're going to see him, and that's going to be an amazing, amazing day. Because what love it is that it that he had for us, that he would do such an amazing, amazing thing for us. Such a great gift, salvation is. And <clears throat> we're going to talk about the love of God tonight. We're on page 152, and this kind of ties into what we've been talking about with the gospel and all the attributes of God. The love of God is an easy one to talk about. It's not, it's not a difficult one. We've had a lot of difficult ones that we've done. This one's not difficult. I think the, the, the most difficult thing about this attribute is learning what love truly is because of America's kind of warped view of what love is. So on 151, I've got a little introduction that says this attribute of God is beyond our grasp of understanding. Any attempt made to describe the love of God is inadequate. That we, an undeserving and treasonous people, are the objects of his love is utterly amazing. Nevertheless, we will begin to chip away at attempting to describe the love of God. <clears throat> and so right off the bat, I've got the first point here that sounds kind of silly, but it really is true. Um, People say, I love tacos, <laughs> or I love that TV show. The word love has been stripped of meaning in today's society. And I really think that is true. It's one of the, the most overused words. It really is. Um, it, it, it amazes me that people say that they, they love tacos, <laughs> or they love a TV show. Or, or these different things, and I, I know what what we want to do. We always want to kind of exaggerate things. That's our tendency as human beings, is to to give a little bit of exaggeration, to give it some umph to show that what we, the words that we're saying, have some meaning behind them. But over time, that meaning begins to be drained. Right? Our impact is less and less whenever we use words like love <laughs> or amazing. Right, amazing, awesome, yeah, awesome's another word that is just so overused. We're we're really bad of stripping words of their true meaning, and so <clears throat> these are just some examples of that. And there's many, many examples of that. Some people say, "I love everything." I hear like uh, every time they say something, they love that. You know, they love this, they love that, they love all these things, and it's and it's things that are not really <laughs> something that you can truly love. It's, it's stripping that word of meaning. So it says we should take the time to define the word love. What does love mean? What does love mean? What do you guys think? What's, what does love mean? Okay, yeah. Well, we'll break that out for us. There's a lesser love. Like a brotherly love. Mm-hmm. Filio, yeah. Um, I guess endearment, or I don't know how you describe it, but mm -hmm. um, um, having strong affection towards <laughs> your brother or sister. Mm -hmm. um, 
how you describe it. Yeah. The, the English language is kind of tricky, and that's why the, that the Greek language is helpful when it comes to this. And I think all of us have been through some type of Greek study on the word love. We, we've heard the word eros. And the word eros is a physical attraction. We get the word erotic and these different things from. It's a physical, a physical type of attraction. Um, then we have filio, which is what that you were describing, which is a brotherly type of love. Uh, it's another word that we're very familiar with, Philadelphia, you know, the city of brotherly love, and that type of thing. And then we have the one that Christians focus on, which is which one? Agape. Agape, yeah, agape, which is the highest form of love. And this is really the type of love that we're going to be focused on when we're looking at this attribute of God is this agape love. Um, <clears throat> so the next point here says, um, the word love has all but been stripped of its meaning today in America. Love is painted as something that we can fall into and something we can fall out of. <laughs> I credit this to Walt Disney. <laughs> You know, falling in and out of love. Of course, there, it's in all kinds of mu music, too, especially rock music and country music. Uh, it's just painted um, in, in, in movies, you know. The, the word love is just painted as though it's something that, that kind of comes upon you. <laughs> it's something you can't control. It just jumps on you. And like, it's a like a virus. <laughs> yeah, like a virus. Like, I'm in love. And then all of a sudden... You don't have that feeling in them anymore. That feeling's gone, and so now I'm, I've fallen out of love, right? And that's what, um, that's what that, uh, America has done, really, to the word love, and that this is not the meaning of love at all. Love is not something mystical. <laughs> Love's not magical. Uh, love is not a feeling. Love is not an emotion. Even though there is emotions and feelings that can come along with love, but that's not the source of love, right? First uh, John four seven through twenty one. Anybody want to read this passage? Okay. okay. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this love is perfected with us, 
so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Mm -hmm. So what stands out here to you guys? There's a lot here in there. There's a lot here, but this is totally different than what the world describes love as being, right? I mean, <clears throat> the world describes love as something something earned in a lot of ways, right? It's something earned. Like, you know, you are treating me the way that I want to be treated, therefore I love you. And the minute that you're not acting the way that you ought to act, you're not treating me the way that I ought to be treated, um, then I don't love you anymore. And that's kind of the way that the world sees it. But here, you know, this this is saying, like in 10 it says, in this is love, not that we loved God. <laughs> not that we loved God, but that he loved us, right? He, he's not loving us because of uh, something that we did or didn't do. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with who he is. God is love. It's a reflection of his character. It's a reflection of his nature. He loves us, not because we deserve it, not because we've done anything for God. We haven't done anything for God. He did everything for us, right? That's love. That he did everything for us, though we did nothing, though we deserve nothing, though we rise against him and shake our fist in his face when we sin, and he still loves us. He still died for us. He still cared for us. This is the true meaning of love. And this is a great passage that deals with that. Does anything else jump out at you guys here in this passage that you want to bring up real quick before we move on? Well, the so it looks like the source of our ability to love others as He loves us comes from the Spirit. Yeah. It's not just something that we should read and go, oh dang, i got to try harder. You know, that That's it's right. a, an outgrowth of our relationship with Him. That's a good point. That's an excellent point. Yeah, and that kind of ties into what's said in this next point. It says, as we can see from verse 7, love is from God. Love is grounded in the very character of God. So agape love, in other words, comes only from God himself. That's the only way that we can love someone unconditionally. Because that's what we're dealing with, right? Agape love means unconditional unconditional love that's a love that's beyond what the world knows the world's love is conditional it can also be a feeling or an emotion but it's definitely conditional so agape love can only come from God himself agape love is really far beyond a natural love that can um, that can be shared among unbelievers <clears throat> we know unbelievers can love I got a question here. It says, what does this statement mean in verse 7? Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. What do you guys think? Of, what do you think this means? Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. 
I think you just said it, that this type of love that's being talked about is agape love, and that can only come from God. We can't that's right. do it ourselves or, you know, attain it or achieve it on our own. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, because unbelievers still love their spouses, right? They still love their children, their friends, uh, but this is natural. This is a natural love that... Um, that protects, you know, they want to protect their loved ones. Uh, it's because they're made in the image of God, though. All these things are just a reflection of being an image bearer of God because the lost people can love their spouses and their children. Um, all that does is show that God exists because <laughs> we wouldn't know what love is without God existing and God being love and being a prime example of what love itself is. Even though they may not know Him, they still are made in His image. Even though they may hate Him, they're still an image bearer of God. Right? That's why we can't murder. We don't murder people because people are made in the image of God. <laughs> right? There's many things that this all ties into as being an image bearer of God. The kind of love, though, that, Im that verse 7 here is talking about is something that's beyond that natural image-bearing um, nature of God, right? It's, it's beyond that, and that's dealing with agape love. It's something unconditional. Um, next point says, agape love sees beyond the here and the now and looks into eternity. Though the world knows natural love and protects their loved ones today, they fail in the most important aspect of love, <laughs> which is eternity. Does that is that not crazy? I mean, you you want any any unbeliever is going to want to protect their children. They're going to want to protect their spouse, their loved ones, except from the one thing that matters: eternity. The most important thing. They don't protect them from that. It's from the things visible, from the, these forces seen, but not the unseen, right? The very thing that they should be most concerned with, they're least concerned with. And this, is, um, this is why that agape love is a different type of love. We're looking into the eternal, we're looking into the future. We care about our children's eternal destination our family's eternal destination. We want to protect them spiritually and physically, not just physically. It's something beyond natural love, right? Does that make sense? Agape love really sees <clears throat> beyond the individual. I mean, when, when we come to, have you guys ever went to a church where you knew absolutely no one, but you felt love? You know, you felt this camaraderie, this um, this this love, this agape love, where you felt like you were a part of uh, of something that, even though you didn't know the individual people there, this is that agape kind of love where we can see strangers as family. We see people that we don't know. That's why we can read about missionaries and people in other countries, and when they're going through hardships. We're crushed by that. We don't like to hear the, the bad news in, in other countries of our brothers and sisters dying because of their faith. It kills us, right? Because we love them. That's, that's, it's a love that's beyond this just natural love. 
Uh, and this is also the kind of love that causes those missionaries to go and risk their lives. I've heard it said, and tell me what you think of this, but agape love is um, characterized by always putting the best interest of the other first. Yeah. So we can look at it with God. He was fine. He didn't need anything from us. And all we brought was sin and brokenness. Mm-hmm. And yet it was in his nature to love us and save us and preserve us to the end so that we could be in glory with him, you know. Yeah. And so, okay, you can say, well, God would do that. But when you see humans doing the same thing, like going into war-torn countries to be a witness and that they're not getting anything out of it, they're living in poverty, they've got no health insurance, no retirement, usually, you know, and so that's evidence of God's agape love. You know. Amen. And in a lot of smaller ways, hopefully in our lives. That's right. That's a good point. That's right. And that's exactly what verse 7 is talking about, right? Uh, if you love like this, then you're born of God <laughs> and you know God. It's a different kind of love, right? It's only made possible by the Holy Spirit who indwells us and empowers us to do these things. And then in verse 8 it says, For God is love. Remember that, uh, the next point here says, Remember that God is simple in his being. He's not made up of parts. God isn't three parts love and four parts holy. Rather, God radiates who he is, and who he is is characterized by perfect love. And that's what John means here when he says that for God is love. (laughs) It's an amazing thing. We've talked about this uh, many times in this class, especially when we did a little bit of apologetics. We talked about how that people wouldn't even understand what love is if God didn't exist, you know. And I just brought it up earlier tonight because it really is true that we, we would not know how to love. We wouldn't even understand love. You know, where would that even come from, you know, if God didn't exist? All these things are just because we're image bearers of him and reflecting those things um, that he is to a very um, mild degree, to a very mild degree compared to who he is. And that's what this next point talks about. And it says, the problem in theology, in theology today within the church is not understanding that God is love, but standing apart God's love as though it is greater than all of his other attributes. What this does, rather than increase love, is it cheapens it. So, <clears throat> this is one of the reasons that we save the love of God until the last attribute, second to last. Um, <clears throat> we have to understand God's love in light of all of his other attributes. Uh, particularly, particularly his justice that we just covered, and that we do that in order to have the correct understanding of, of God's love instead of a um, distorted view, right? Because so many people say, well, God's primary attribute is love. It's not his primary attribute. Uh, I have a hard time saying God has a primary attribute, but if I said that he, if I would say that he does have a primary attribute, it would be holy. <laughs> because holy, uh, it kind of encompasses it all, right? Um, holy, holiness encompasses all of the attributes that we've been talking about. 
uh, and we're going to get to holiness next, but uh, the Bible doesn't say God is love, love, love. It says God is holy, 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 right? And so <clears throat> we can't have a distorted view of God and say, well, because God is greater in love than he is in justice, then he's not really going to be that harsh on sinners. You know, you, it, this really cheapens God's love. And that's why I said um, that it cheapens God's love to have a distorted view, to think that it's, you think you have an elevated view of God, uh, uh, of God's love, but really you have a cheapened view of God's love because God loves perfectly, right? And perfect love encompasses perfect justice also, and, and, and perfect mercy, and uh, perfect holiness and all the other attributes that we've been talking about perfectly, right? Uh, we talked before about how that, he, and I brought it up earlier, that he's a simple being, and it's really bad to divide these things out. It's, to, it's bad to divide out these attributes, but we have to in this class in order to understand them, even though in reality they're not divided. Each one is a perfect part of the other one, right? And so they're all perfectly intertwined together. Um, and so we can't separate them or say that there's one that's greater than the other, right? Um, and that's where uh, we can get a distorted view of God, which really cheapens it and cheapens who he is and his character. Something that we have to be careful with because so many churches, we've been to churches, me and Nikki's been to churches, where that's all they'll talk about is the love of God. That's fantastic, but you never hear of any of his other attributes, right? You've really created an idol. You've created a God that you like, not the one who is. You have to be careful with that kind of thing. Steve, was you fixing to say something? I was just thinking that it's like a, an analogy would be the way we think about a grandfather. You know, the parents have to set discipline and right and wrong and punish and that kind of thing that grandfathers just spoil. And people want to think of God as a big heavenly eternal grandfather and it's going to take you up in his lap and grant all your wishes. That's right. Never be angry at you. That's right. That's right. So many people do. Yeah, this next point says we must be careful not to craft a God that we enjoy rather than the one who is. And when we do that, we call it idolatry, right? And that was the next point here. So to strip God of his holiness, to strip God of his justice, to strip God of his sovereignty, to strip God of his wrath, and to craft a God that in your, in your mind you want to worship is a false God. We have to be real careful um, with this, and we also have to be careful not to carry a secular view of, of love and apply it to God also that we just talked about earlier. So that's why we have to have a biblical view of God. That's why that we read, we started out with First John because we have a good biblical understanding of who God really is and what his love really truly is because it's so easily distorted because of what the world says or because of what we think or because of what we want, right? Rather than what it says he is. The next point is God's love is holy. What does holy love mean? What does the word holy mean? Literally set apart. Yeah, that's right. And because of being set apart, pure, 
That's right. Set apart and pure. Other, it means it can mean other, which also means set apart and pure. So God, God's love is a love that is other, <laughs> right? That's what holy love would mean, is that God's love is a love that is other. Love is a love that is apart or a love that is different, and God's love is pure. <laughs> God's love is pure, it's perfect, it's absolutely pure, with no bad intentions, no selfishness whatsoever mixed in with it. Those are human characteristics, <laughs> right? That's what we do to love. We have sometimes selfishness intertwined with our love. <laughs> Anybody that's ever been married says, amen, <laughs> right? <laughs> we know what that, we know each one of us has been that and have experienced that both. So I've got a quote here from R.C. Sproul. There is no shadow that covers the brightness of a pure glory of the pure glory of the love of God. No shadow that covers the brightness of the pure glory of God. I think that's good. Why is that important to understand? That's the next question here. Why is it, un why is it important to understand that, that there's no shadow that can cover the brightness of the pure glory of the love of God? Why do you, what do you, th why do you think that's important? It kind of ties into what we've been talking about and um, understanding that it, this really is a a holy love. It's something that's other. It's something that's different. It's something that God has not kept from us or veiled His love in any way. It's perfectly spelled out for us on the pages of Scripture uh, very clearly in a way that we can't comprehend. Um, something that we would never do for a creature that we had made <laughs> that rebelled against us and wanted to be us. <laughs> You know, that's, um, <clears throat> that's something that is so far beyond what we can understand. Um, and it's important to understand this as apart from a secular love or a naturalistic love. Um, God is the, is the creator, and he really transcends above all of his creatures and our abilities. So at, even at our greatest potential... We are really just dim reflectors of God's love. Um, <clears throat> we're image bearers, but the Creator, He transcends us like the sun, right? Like the sun transcends us. And there's a, there's a big difference in being, we can take a mirror and reflect the sun, <laughs> but it would be a much different experience if we were standing on the sun, <laughs> right? That's a much different experience. And that, in the same way, um, so God's love is, and so we are reflecting that, but it's only by his power, because of him and through him, that, um, <clears throat> that there's any, any real strength or true unconditional love that can be shared with those people that we love in the church and in our families as Christians, right? If that makes sense. So we love, and love really should be a, the, the fuel that drives everything that we do, that we do for God and for people. Um, yeah, go ahead. To go back to this quote, if, um, if there were a shadow that could overshadow the yeah. love, the brightness and the glory of the love of God, we, 
where would we be? And it's like the world could finally do something so wicked that he'd give up on humanity altogether. Yeah. Or the, the darkness of, of evil, you know, the satanic forces could win the battle. You know? Right. So he has to remain sovereign. Or the promises are for nothing. Yeah, immutable. Yeah. Immutable and sovereign, that's absolutely right. Yeah, there's nothing... There's nothing that overshadows. <laughs> There's nothing greater that causes him to to no longer love us. This is amazing as that is. <laughs> as many times as we've failed, right? <coughs> the next um, page on 154 says God's love was first within the Trinity. So the Trinity is complete in their love for one another. There was nothing missing within the Trinity. God did not need to create mankind because he was lacking in any way. This is another thing that is hard for us to comprehend because, you know, we say, well, if there was perfect, there's nothing missing. God, God wasn't missing. You know, it's not like, you know, you complete me, right? <laughs> you know, mankind completes me. <clears throat> and there, there, no, no. God completes himself, right? He's perfect in his love, perfect in unity. Um, we didn't have to be created to complete God. <laughs> we didn't have to be created um, so God would have a mission <laughs> and to feel like he was fulfilled within himself, right? <clears throat> Their love was perfect and is perfect in the Trinity. Uh, and that he created us is just showing an overspilling of his love and graciousness, right? It's an overflow. <clears throat> There's so much love that it overflows. <laughs> it overflows to us in his creation as being a creature, as being created, because he was sharing himself with his creatures, right? Um, it's another amazing, amazing thing when you really think about it. And this next point says, referring to the attribute of a deity, God's love was shared in eternity past, perfectly within the Trinity. Of course, we talked about uh, the deity of God, that he had no beginning, he has no ending, there's nothing that sustains him. Um, so that's what this is talking about. And this is really going to be important to understand when we talk about God's eter eternal love. So i got two verses here, or two uh, sections of scripture here. Well, they're both in John 14. Uh, the first one is John 14, 9 through 10. Any volunteers to read that? Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you that, and yet you have not come to know me? Philip? Sorry. He who, was, who, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his work. That's right, that's right. And then John fourteen thirty one kind of solidifies this, where it says, But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. So this is just showing that, that there's perfect love. And because of the love that they share, Jesus reflects all these things to us, right? Even in his incarnation, um, <clears throat> which is a, a, an amazing 
an amazing thing. And when he does that, it says, so that the world may know, <laughs> may know that I love the Father. May know I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Exactly. Um, <clears throat> it's important to understand that God's love did not manifest with the creation of man. Rather, his love spilled over onto man. So God didn't become a God of love when he created. <laughs> right? That's his, his attribute of love didn't all of a sudden come into existence whenever he, he created the, the, the earth and created mankind. I've got a point. Is this in your notes where it says we will get into a little bit of covenant theology here? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> so I, I threw this in as a note, but I didn't put a point on it, so I, I don't know why I didn't do that. But um, So I, let me read this. It says we will get into a little bit of covenant theology here. There are parts of covenant theology that I agree with and parts that I disagree with. <clears throat> the concept of covenant of the covenant of redemption I agree with. The covenant of the concept of all three covenants of covenant theology I agree with to a certain point. When covenant theology becomes a filter for hermeneutics, I must depart. We will get into the details of covenant theology when we get into an introduction to theology in a later study. So that was the plan, was to go into another theological study later. Covenant theology is... Um, I don't know if you guys, some of you guys are probably familiar with covenant theology and some of you guys probably never heard of covenant theology. Uh, covenant theology is a major theological view, especially within Reformed circles, Presbyterian circles and um, a lot of Baptist circles. Brandon holds to covenant theology here at this church. <clears throat> I don't know who else does. I, I hold to it to a certain degree. I, I put the this little point in here I where I... Uh, depart is when you use it as a filter for hermeneutics. So whenever you start saying, well, I need to interpret the Bible according to covenant theology, <clears throat> then I have a problem with it. And so that's where I part ways a little bit with it. So uh, just a quick little excerpt on that. But uh, this point says the covenant of redemption is the concept that God made a covenant not with man, but within the Godhead, before the creation of the world, so that he would redeem a certain people for himself. Okay, So this is important to understand, because of really there's a lot of bad views of redemption that's surfaced over the last 200 years. We actually talked about this at Sunday School this morning. It's kind of weird, because <clears throat> I haven't talked about... Um, uh, penal substitutionary atonement. It's not something that we talk about a whole lot, but it's strange that we talked about it in Sunday school because we happened to be, we hit it uh, with the early church fathers in the 300s, and now we're hitting it again tonight. <laughs> so it just, it's, it's strange that uh, I talked about this a little bit earlier today. <clears throat> but wrong views of redemption really gives us wrong views of the way that God loves. Okay? Wrong views of the way that God loves. And I've got a little excerpt that I took out of Husky's study notes on historical theology, which is a um, a book that I published a couple years ago. And so I just copied and pasted in uh, out of that book <clears throat> this little this little por portion here that's in in italics. So this guy, Faustus Socinus, that's that's how you say that, Socinus. Uh, he was in 1539 to 
1604. Socinus was a theologian and one of the founders of the Unitarian Universalist Church. That should throw up some red flags right there. <laughs> he was one of the founders of the Unitarian Universalist Church. He's worth mentioning only because his ideas about the atonement are still around today. He published a book called On Christ the Savior in which he writes, and this is a quote, Christ is Savior not because he suffered for our sins, but because he showed us the way to eternal salvation, which consists in our imitating him, and that he did not suffer to satisfy God's justice, nor to appease his wrath. Heresy, right? <laughs> I can see, like, Steve, it's like bubbling up, and it's, he wants to say it. It's, he, wants to, he wants to say heresy. So, <clears throat> it is. It's heresy. This is totally opposite of what we believe, right? Uh, this is totally opposite of what uh, Christianity teaches. And there's a reason. We, we've talked in, in this class several times about why that certain heresies exist. And the reason that a lot of heresies exist is because people want to defend God. They want to, they have an idea of God and who he is. And in their mind, if Jesus came to die for us as a penal substitutionary atonement, that would look, God, that would look bad on God. You know, that would, he would be a cosmic child abuser, is what they say. Um, so, uh, th a lot of these ideas come about because of people wanting, wanting to defend God. And we, we've talked about, we, we're, we're creatures. We, we don't have the right to defend God. Right? God doesn't need his creatures to defend him. <laughs> He's God. Uh, we have to, to take God for who he is and, and for what scripture says that he is, whether we like that or not. And if we don't like it, it's probably because we don't understand it. And so people begin to fight against these things, and this is what was going on here. And this is really this, um, this view that Socinus came up with. Was, it, it became known as Socinianism. Socinianism. And this is a view that if God punished Jesus in our place, it would be an injustice because Jesus was innocent. And so God cannot punish an innocent person, right? And so that's, that's the whole view. Uh, Jesus was innocent. God can't really punish an innocent person. Um, and not only that, but Jesus didn't really want to do it because in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was sweating drops of blood, and he said, Not my will, God. I don't, I don't want to do this. If there's any other way. If there's any other way. And God says, I don't care, go. Right? That's the way that they see it. They see it as God going, I don't care what you want. You're going to do it. So it's cosmic child abuse. That's the way they see it. And we, we say, well, yeah, if that was, if that was the case, then, it, then maybe they were right. But that's simply not the case. And we've got a scripture here to, to verify this. I've got a question that says, how can a perfectly just God punish an innocent person for the sins of others? What do you guys think? How can a perfectly just God punish an innocent person for the sins of others? It's a hard question. Hard question. 
And so there's some different things we have to understand here, right? The first thing we need to understand is that Jesus was a willing sacrifice. <laughs> a willing sacrifice. And John 10, 17 through 18 says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So here we can see Jesus Christ, he did this willingly. It wasn't God forcing him to do it. it whenever he was um, sweating drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane and saying, not my will, but your will be done, it wasn't because he didn't want to die. Jesus wasn't a coward. <laughs> it had nothing to do with that. It had to do with him taking the wrath of God upon himself and God turning his face away for the first time. you got to remember, he, he's existed since before the creation of the world. So you can't say for the first time uh, since the beginning of the world. It's for the first time in all of existence, right? Which is eternity. And so <clears throat> God the Father had never turned his face from Jesus. And all of that wrath is being poured out upon him, and that's why he was stressed out. It wasn't because he was scared to die. I mean, we have countless, countless um, historical record of martyrs being um, going to their deaths, preaching, praying, uh, blessing people. Uh, I mean, they weren't afraid to die. And to say, oh, Jesus was afraid to die would make him a, a coward. And it would show the show some of the historical fi figures in church history as, as more bold than Jesus, right? That's not why he was sweating drops of blood, right? And I think we understand that. It was because of that, because of God pouring all of his wrath out upon a perfectly innocent person and him bearing the sins of us all. So, Jesus went willingly to the cross. This is one of the reasons that a perfectly just God can punish an innocent person for the sins of others. The second thing we have to understand is <clears throat> that it was God's law that we've broken. So it is He who deems the means of reconciliation. So in other words, <clears throat> God's the one that, that says that this is the law, right? And when you break that law, it's not up to us to decide how that we can be reconciled to God. God decides that for himself <laughs> in the way that God has designed and decided that we are to be reconciled to himself is through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's something that was perfectly agreed upon in the unity of the Trinity, right? <clears throat> Psalm 115.3 says, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatsoever he pleases. Whatsoever he pleases. It had to be his plan. It had to be his plan. The third thing we have to understand is the imputation of our sins to Christ. So it's not that Jesus Christ was a sinner, but rather that our sins were imputed to him, right? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of of God in him. So Jesus Christ took our sins. It was imputed to him because only he could take it. So God was willing 
to do it. God designed the perfect plan for our redemption. When he went to the cross, he's the only one that could take our sins. He's the only one that our sins could be imputed to. And then fourthly, we have to understand that Jesus wanted God to be glorified in the eyes of man because his name in glory have been trampled, really, by us. Um, we're good at trampling the name of God. We're good at trampling his glory. I mean, not in reality, but <clears throat> in, in idea, in our words, in our actions, in our thoughts. So John 17, 1-5 says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. Right? He's doing this to glorify his Father. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. We know that Adam, whenever he sinned, he really, he did not damage, not, I, when I, I have to be careful the way I say this. He didn't, he didn't damage God's glory, right? <clears throat> but in the, in the sight of men, he did, right? So men uh, ha have, have taken on this nature of sin uh, and that was a consequence of the rebellion of the treason against God. And because of these things, um, then man hates God, right? We naturally hate God because of the rebellion of Adam and because of the curse. Uh, scripture is pretty clear about that, that um, all that our hearts are is wicked continuously. Uh, so really, we, we take the name of God and we spit upon it. We mock it. We rub it in the dirt, in the mud. Uh, that's what man likes to do. They use. There's a reason that God's name is used as a cuss word. There's a, a reason that people say Jesus Christ as a cuss word, or God as a cuss word. Um, there's a reason for that, and and we can see here, and and we have to understand that Jesus Christ. He came to glorify God in the, in the eyes of, of man. Not that he needed to, <laughs> but he did. And he did it um, for us so that we could have a realistic view of God, right? So that we could see who he is, and that is because he loves us, right? He loves us and he wants us to really know him. So, <clears throat> does that make sense? You guys hanging with me so far? And there's one more thing, the fifth thing that we have to understand and that is that the entire Old Testament sacrificial system was pointing to Jesus Christ being the innocent lamb whose blood would be poured out for the sins of the people, right? That's what the entire Old Testament sacrificial system was about. It was all pointing to Jesus Christ. First Peter 1 Peter 1.18-19 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, 
but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. So I've got a point in here. This is from my, my, my other study. It says you must work hard to not see penal substitution atonement, sub substitutionary atonement in the Bible. We're really dealing with idolatry. Other views of the atonement are committing the same fallacy that Arminians do. They feel like they must defend God somehow because he is a type of monster. If you adhere to views that they simply do not understand and for that matter do not want to understand. If they are to learn to see the truth of Scripture, it must be by the Holy Spirit illuminating what they see as contradictory natures of God and showing them that his nature is altogether perfect. And so that just kind of um, states what I said earlier, that um, that's where we get into trouble, when we start wanting to defend God, when we start wanting to uh, create a God that we really like. Um, if you guys have ever seen the second American Gospel, um, they deal with penal substitutionary atonement, and there's actually preachers on there saying, you know, cosmic child abuse, and they're saying, you know, if if um, if Jesus was truly a substitute for us, well, then God's a monster. That's what they said, and you know, they, that's what some of these pastors were saying, and that's why that this is important to understand, right? This is a different kind of love. <laughs> this is this isn't. This isn't a natural love. This is that's why that I, I bring this up because we're dealing with a love that is so far beyond what we can understand that Jesus Christ did this. A perfectly innocent person went to the cross to take the punishment of of people who are truly guilty, and God pours His wrath out upon him. That's a love that we can't understand. That's something that's so far beyond um, our capabilities. So, um, next point here says, we took the time to look at one bad view of redemption in order to show that God loved us from before he created us. That he loves us enough to create us knowing that we would reject him and he would ultimately need to suffer and die for us, yet still created us, is unfathomable. Um, that's one of the things that I keep going back to again and again is, is like, wow, I can't imagine being God and knowing that I was going to have to take that kind of suffering <laughs> uh, because I, you know, I'm omniscient and I'm still going to make these creatures. <laughs> you know, I'm still going to make these creatures who are going to rebel against me and I'm going to have to go through the suffering in order to redeem them. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. John 3, 16 through 21, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who, who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Wrought in God. So, um, 
This is this is a, an amazing kind of love that we're dealing with here. I've got a quote from Sproul. In theology, we distinguish among three different kinds of God's love. First of all, there is a benevolent love of God. God's goodwill is benevolence. That is his goodwill, which he gives to the whole world. Second, there is a common grace where God is kind to all sinners in the world to some degree. Related to this is the will of beneficence, which describes his good actions. God pours out his goodness upon all mankind. The sun falls on the unjust as well as upon the just. There's a third type of love that we call the love of complacency. Here the theological term complacency is not referring to an attitude of being at ease in Zion or the way that we speak about being complacent. Rather it describes the special love that he has for his son and those who are in his son, that is those who are adopted into his heavenly family, they are the redeemed or the saved. The result is a special love that God has for his redeemed that he does not have for the wicked, which the Bible speaks to when it describes God as abhorring the evildoer. We've talked about this in this class a couple different times, how that God loves his elect in, in a different kind of way. And that's basically what Sproul is showing here is that there is a, a special relationship that we, that we have uh, in Jesus Christ. And it's not anything that we deserved. It's not anything that we earned. It's uh, just because of his perfectly good plan and pleasure that we are a part of this family. Um, <clears throat> this point says it would be a mistake to see the object of God's love as being the world whom he is pleased to redeem. Rather, the object of God's love is the Son, God loves us in the Son. God the Father's love is grounded in Jesus Christ. So that's what Sproul is talking about ultimately, is that God the Father loves Jesus. We're in Christ, and that's why that we have this special kind of love, this complacency that he that R.C. Sproul talks about is a different type of complacency. Um, and that is because we are in Jesus Christ. We're loved just as Jesus Christ is loved by the Father because we are in him, right? And that's how, how we are adopted into the family of God. Matthew 3:17. And behold, a voice came out of the heavens, said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. John 3:35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So this relationship that the Father and Jesus has is an example, really, that is set before us on how that we should love one another, how that we should love our children. John 5:20 says, "For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel." John 10, 17-18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father is showing this love that they have. So because God loves the Son, He gives gifts to the Son. 
which is the church. <laughs> this is the last point, really, in this little section. I thought we were going to get a little further tonight, but I'm going to read this in Isaiah 53. So, God loves the Son, and because He loves the Son, He gives gifts to the Son, which is us, which is the church. Isaiah 53, 3-12, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, He was despised and we did not esteem Him. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chastising for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he would see his offspring. He would prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result, of, it, of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one. My servant will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Before I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide, he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. So here we can see here that he did all this, and this talks about in uh, verse 10 about how that he will see his offspring, right? He will see his offspring, his church, his church, his people, us, we're given to Jesus Christ, and we are his offspring. And he talks about, and he will divide the booty with the strong. This is talking about the church again, you know? This is um, <clears throat> this is God giving a gift to His Son, God the Father giving a gift to His Son, and that is us, that is His church. So this is, um, this is a, an amazing gift, an amazing work that all of the Trinity is involved in, is the redemption of mankind. And we're out of time. You guys have anything else that you want to bring up real quick? We covered a bunch of stuff real quick right there at the end because I was trying to cover a little bit of territory. But um, <clears throat> you guys have any final thoughts or questions? Or God's love is truly amazing and truly hard for us to to comprehend. But it's um, it's it's an amazing love, an amazing love. Steve, you want to dismiss us?